HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. That's right, people. It is Monday, and it is time for your favorite program, What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Welcome to the show. Um, we have a really great show today. My One of my favorite guests has returned. Uh, his name is Ted Genoways. Ted is a contributing editor at Mother Jones, at The New Republic, and at Pacific Standard. His last book, The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food, was a finalist for the James Beard Foundation Award for Writing and Literature, and he was interviewed several times on this program, uh, either for chapters from that book or from the, for the whole uh, publication. His other honors include a National Press Club Award, an Association of Food Journalists Award, the James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism, and fellowships from the NEA and Guggenheim Foundations. His new book, This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm, has just been published by W.W. W. Norton, and it gives me uh, pure pleasure to welcome you back to what doesn't kill you, Ted. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Katie, thanks. It's always great to be on. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, tell all your friends. Um, <laughs> first of all, what made you write this book? The book is A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. What did you feel people needed to know about American family farmers that, that drew you to this project? Sure. Well, I, I think certainly you know, and many of your listeners know, that, that the last decade has seen a real kind of awakening in um, consumer awareness about their food, Um, you know, the slow slow food movement, the Mm -hmm. eat eat local movement, um, people looking for things that are organic or fair trade or animal welfare approved. Um, But the thing that I started to sense was missing was any conversation about the the people who actually grow the food Mm -hmm. and how these, these kinds of new consumer demands um, about how food be grown might be affecting the farmers who are the ones who ultimately 
have to shoulder the cost of making changes and um, and anytime you're taking on new costs or, or having to, to learn new methods it's it's a period of, of risk for for farms and especially for the small farmers and so um, at a certain point uh, my wife and I, Marianne Andre, who's a photographer, and we often work together, um, we got to talking about ways of, of trying to um, portray the, the, the broader uh, pressures that farmers are, are being put under, being squeezed on one side by big, but then maybe being squeezed by conscientious consumers on the other side. Mm-hmm. And eventually what we decided on was trying to to find a, a family that we could follow and follow them through a whole cycle on the farm, um, a, a sort of cycle that many people, I think, have, have completely forgotten. Um, <laughs> and, and to see in all of its complexity what it means to be planting, growing, and harvesting um, on the row crop side, what it means to be you know, calving and and raising uh, cattle on the on the the meat production side, and to just um, to see, I hope, with a great deal of humanity, all of the the complexity of of this moment as it comes to bear on on a single family and a single piece of land. Yeah. Well, you certainly did a very effective job of that. I mean, the the Hammond family, which is the family that you profiled, um, they are sort of the quintessential American family farm at this point. They're not not too small, but not really big. They're not an agribusiness, you know, per se. Um, <clears throat> they're not uh, really locked into the either the, you know, certainly in the meat side of it. They're not. A, they're not a CAFO. They're not a. They're not a cow calf operation. Well, I guess they are a cow calf operation. Yeah. Um, but that's all, and uh, and also the the number of crops that they grow. They're primarily corn and soy farmers, and uh, out in Nebraska, which is where your book is placed, um, that's that's the big. Those are the big uh, crops, if I'm not mistaken. Um, right. So they're really they're really kind of locked into that um, into that model. Which um, I'm going to now make you go back in history to explain how we got to that model. So um, since they are corn and soy farmers, one of the things that really struck me in the early part of the book, and I, I have to say, you did a wonderful job of sort of weaving the history of uh, 20th century farming or even earlier, um, late 19th and early 20th century farming into um, the picture of how the Hammond family and, and other farmers of their type operate. So you, you describe the impact of Henry Ford on farming um, and his sort of uh, espousal of soybeans. And I, I wanted you to sort of take people on a journey with Henry Ford uh, for a few minutes. Sure. Yeah. So the, the first thing to to remember is that the the soybean is a pretty recent arrival in terms of American agriculture. That mm. um, you know, a century ago there were fewer than a million acres of soybeans um, planted in the whole of the United States, and so it was it was far outpaced by by you know more traditional grains like barley and rye and oats and, and wheat. I mean, and wheat and hay yeah. and yeah and and. Uh, what happened was a kind of confluence of of events in the in the 1920s when uh, th- there's a collapsing economy, obviously, um, and also uh, a moment in time where there's there's this need on the part of Henry Ford um, to find ways to prop up the farmer, um, in particular because 
uh, obviously he was manufacturing cars, but he was making just as much money manufacturing farm trucks and mm-hmm. trucks for shipping uh, grain and, and other goods to market, and then tractors and so on. And right. so he recognized that the farmer was his primary customer, and if farms were, were failing, they were not going to be able to buy equipment and that that was going to be problematic for him. Right. So, so the big question for him was, you know, how did he become a customer of the farmer um, at the same time that he was hopefully making a customer of the farmer? And the thing he hit upon was this idea that, that they could use um, the oils out of, out of any um, farm product as, as an alternative source for the industrial fuels that they were needing to produce, both for, um, for fuel in the tank, but also for um, all sorts of other applications like, you know, in paint and in, um, you know, the manufacture of plastics that, for the steering wheels and the shifting mm. knobs and all of that sort of thing. And so he put his team, um, his research team, onto testing out all kinds of different crops to see what would um, be the best source for um, these kinds of oils. And eventually what they discovered was that the soybean not only produced um, this oil that was, that was more effective and um, more easily combined into some of the, the compounds that they were trying to make than others, but also um, after it had been milled and the and the uh, the grain had been extracted from it, the meal had been extracted from it. Um, that unlike most other products, that meal remained high in proteins and other um, nutrients, so that it could be sold to animal feeders. And so they could not only get more of what they needed out of a soybean, but they could also um, help defray the costs of all of this by by selling it to a secondary market. And so Ford went hard into soybeans. And to prove its its viability, um, he started planting soybeans himself um, on his farmland in rural Michigan. And before long was the the largest farmer of soybeans in America, something that um, I think most people probably don't realize. It was news to me, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, Who knew we had him to thank for that too? Right, and, <laughs> and and along the way said, you know, anyone else who will raise soybeans, um, I'll buy your whole crop. And you know, as we rounded the bend into the 30s and a real crisis on the farm, having a guaranteed buyer at a at a guaranteed price was a godsend. And so yeah. all sorts of farmers first in Michigan, but then soon across all of the upper Midwest and spreading down into and across the Midwest, started planting soybeans, and Ford made good on his promise. He kept buying the full crop, and, and everyone, of course, then started building to support the infrastructure, building feed mills and building, you know, extraction plants mm-hmm. um, to be able to process into the different products that, that Ford needed. Um, and it became such a, uh, a big part of what Ford was doing. I, I absolutely love that, that, you know, that there are accounts from the people who worked at the Ford Motor Plants complaining that the commissary now, you could only get baked goods that were made with soy flour. You could only get <laughs> soy milk at the, at the Ford plant. And, you know, again, 
something that I think has been completely lost, like this this moment in history when all the Ford workers were drinking soy milk <laughs> over lunch. Um, and but you know what happened, unfortunately, was that um, just as Ford was really making this push for for alternative fuels in in the 1930s, yeah. um, there was a huge oil strike in. Uh, Saudi Arabia, and we soon discovered that there was oil all over the Middle East. The price of of petroleum came way down, and it made it such that it was no longer really viable to be raising soybeans for those industrial purposes, not for the moment. I see. Um, and and so what ends up happening instead is that all those people who have built the mills and all the people who had come to rely on it as feed become the primary customers. And so the soybean makes its its arrival then sort of coming out of World War II primarily as a as an animal feed. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, I loved the the fact that he was trying to promote that as as, as a biofuel way back before um, you know, as you say, oil became uh, basically as cheap as water right. in some places and, <laughs> and that was the end of that until uh, you know what? Twenty years ago, or whatever it was, when Bush decided that we needed to do the ethanol mandate and exactly, yeah, back so to corn and soy. When it comes back, right? yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm going to go a little bit further back in history, just because um, I thought it was a really interesting uh, aspect of the book when you were talking about the Homestead Act. I mean, most people, if you didn't read Laura Ingalls Wilder as a child, you probably never heard of the Homestead Act. <laughs> I was, I was a big fan of those books. Um, and I still am, actually. I don't know if you've had an occasion to read them yourself, yeah, Ted. Yeah, definitely. But, um, you know, if you want a description of pioneer life, like a real nitty-gritty uh, description um, geared towards children, but certainly every bit is compelling. I mean, the, the courage and ingenuity of those folks that, that actually did take advantage of the Homestead Act is, is really not to be believed. They're incredibly brave people. Um, but there was the Homestead Act, which allowed people to um, get 100 and, um, what is it, 160 acres is the right. quarter section. And then, um, and then at the same time, there was I didn't know about the Pacific Railway Act, and I also didn't know about the development of the early ag schools called A&M, Arts and Mechanics, is that right? Yeah. Um, and the USDA. So all those things kind of happened around the same period, which was, what, the 1880s to 1900? That's right. Yeah, so, I mean, the whole thing starts, it's it's interesting. It, it really is a product of, of Lincoln's kind of hard-nosed uh, political instincts mm-hmm. that, you know, at a moment that that the country was splitting apart over, obviously, the institution of slavery, the real political fight had been over how the Western states would be brought into the Union and right. at, a, at a time when the country was still largely agricultural, you know, what what the land ownership in those places would look like. And at the moment of secession and um, having the numbers that he needed in Congress to, to pass certain laws, Lincoln set the stage for a a post-war moment um, when all of the Western states would already be divided into small plot farms that would be sustainable by people going west and living on the land as opposed to this sort of large plantation model mm-hmm. that really was only effective um, when you had cheap or free labor. That's right. And so the first thing was to say, as you said, we're going 
what we're going to do is we're going to divide everything up according to a grid, really not any attention to the landscape or terrain. We're just going to lay a grid over the map and divide everything up into 160 plot or 160 acre plots. And you can have it for free. Um, first of all, the first condition being that you have never taken up arms against the United States. So, again, trying to encourage some of the small farmers from the south, go west and make a new life for yourself rather than fighting against the Union. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you had to live on the land and you had to raise, you had to build a home and you had to raise a crop. And you had to show that, that you had raised crops on the land for five years and then it was yours um, to sell um, or to keep. And the, as you said, that, that the, they very quickly realized that the people who had gotten out there and had been most ambitious about taking this chance very often were not very skilled farmers. They were people who were, you know, hoping for an opportunity and, and didn't have any experience, especially <laughs> with trying to raise crops on, on you know, the semi-arid plains of yeah. Nebraska and the Dakotas and so on. And so, um, and so what was also put in place was um, a series of, of other acts, the Pacific Railway Act, the Morrill Act, um, that would, first of all, bring in railroads um, so that there was, you know, a way for the farmers to get their, their products to market, but also a way for all of the supplies that they really needed to, to build a home, to build a farm, and um, to, to stay alive in lean times would be, could be gotten there relatively cheaply. Right. And then they also, as, as part of that, um, started building roads. And, I mean, one of the things that's kind of remarkable when you see the Midwestern landscape, when you know this, is that the setup was that the railroads would go out, and every six miles there was a town. Uh-huh. Every mile within the six miles, every mile there was a road. And within every mile square, there were four farms, quarter sections. Wow. And so everything was set up for everyone to have more or less equal access to the railroads, to the roads, to the markets. And, and then the last piece of it was, um, was building these ag and mechanical arts colleges so that people could, could learn um, agriculture and also so that there was a, a mechanism for, for research into the best practices and, and so that each place, um, each state, had its own research wing where best practices for that area could be developed. And, um, and this was, was also then the moment when the, the USDA, as you mentioned, is, is created. And so the, there's also a federal um, body that is, that is overseeing all of this and is trying to look ahead for you know what are what are the best methods for collecting data, um, analyzing you know any sorts of information about uh, how to best raise crops, how to best irrigate crops, um, new equipment that that is coming along, mm. and making sure that that information is shared with farmers. And it, it's all of that support that really makes the development and the 
the survival of these farms possible. It's a, I mean, it laid the groundwork for, you know, basically farming for this country for the next, until now. I mean, yes, that's really true. It was, it's really, it's this, it's the seed crop. <laughs> yes, I mean, I thought that was just fascinating. I mean, who, whoever reads the history of farming in America, nobody, but now you will, because you'll read this blessed earth. I'm Mike Calameco, host of Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Bob Moore, founder of Bob's Red Mill, as well as Ray and Tom Williams, who've worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray, Tom, why is organic farming so important to your family? It's all a matter of the soil is a source of nutrients. If you increase organic matter of the soil, you increase the water holding capacity. Water is becoming increasingly scarce. So in terms of sustainability, we don't think it's the only answer, but it's one answer, and it's the answer that we're trying to pursue. It's been a challenge, and it's been fun because it, it is different, and we're learning how to do it for the last 10-plus years. We're not just doing organic. We're doing organic to high standards. Bob, why did you choose to partner with Ray and Tom? Oh, goodness, Bob, because they're the best farmers in Oregon, and they're close, and they have a bunch of acres, I think about 10,000, over in, in eastern Oregon and Washington. They're wonderful farmers, and their family have been farmers over there uh, for many, many years. It's really important that you have long-term relationships, and we've enjoyed a long-term relationship with Bob's because there are a lot of challenges to organic farming. You simply don't have as many tools as a conventional farmer, and so you have to rely on longer-term solutions. Knowing that you have a market is absolutely critical. The margins in farming are not that great, so if you grow the stuff and you can't sell it, you have a real problem. And we know with Bob's that we have a market, and uh, we turn out high-quality grains, and they buy them, and it all works well. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. To fast forward a little bit, I wanted to talk um, quickly about the impact of, you know, speaking of those agricultural arts and arts and mechanics um, schools, was the impact of uh, Henry Wallace, who then subsequently became the Secretary of Agriculture. Um, but he just made discoveries about seeds that had a tremendous, um, uh, you know, innovative um, impact on farming in America. And he also advocated for the establishment of something called the Ever Normal Granary, which was like basically just... Uh, um, it was just like a, 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 reg, a regular, like a warehouse, like a, right. you know, whatever, I don't know what you call that, an ever normal granary. Can you right. talk a little bit, talk, and, and also about the Soil Conservation Act. So he was on to soil conservation way before, like now all of a sudden we're all back into soil conservation. Suddenly everyone has realized that conserving soil is maybe a good idea when you're farming. Um, so you know, it's just, it's so interesting how everything old is new again. But talk a little bit about Henry Wallace, because he really obviously was a very seminal figure in establishing sort of current agricultural, you know, mores. Absolutely. I mean, I think that Henry A. Wallace is maybe the sort of great unsung hero of the 20th century. I mean, mm. he, he really did remarkable things, um, especially for... The, the development of, of the American farm. But he's, as you say, he's also a great example of how um, many years later, I mean, into the, the, the 20s, the programs that have been established by Lincoln were, were still the, the central um, place for, for research and for just support for the American farmer. I mean, 
Wallace's father, um, Henry C. Wallace, had been um, the, the head of the USDA That's and right. was then um, a professor at, at Iowa State, which was you know the agricultural college that had been established for the state of Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his son, Henry A. Wallace, was able to um, to study there and and learn all sorts. He was especially fascinated by um, by corn and by corn genetics. Um, and just as an aside, I think kind of especially fascinating that um, one of his father's students had been George Washington Carver, oh. and and Carver, um, you know, had been obviously looking for ways to uh, different ways of raising and, and using peanuts as a way of creating uh, some support for, for small plot African-American farmers in the South. Wallace had this idea that he could do the exact same thing with corn production uh, for poor white farmers in the Midwest. Uh-huh. And so what he said about doing was trying to find a way to create um, corn that, that would uh, year after year produce high yields. Uh, the, the problem with that is that the way that farmers had always been doing things is basically saving seeds from, from plants that had well the year before right. and, and replanting them the next year. And it turns out that corn genetics are way more complicated than that. Hmm. And so Wallace was the person who really figured out the method of inbreeding corn in order to create uh, the parent plants that you need um, and then can crossbreed every year in order to produce durable hybrids. Right. And most importantly, he came up with, well, one of the people on his team came up with uh, a hybrid that was drought resistant and would still continue to perform well in a drought time just exactly before the Dust Bowl arrived. Wow. <laughs> and so, um, and so w- when Wallace was able to, um, you know, the people who were using his corn were able to see how much higher their yields were than the people who were not, um, you know, the, the transformation was just remarkable. Um, yeah. That, that, you know, and, and the seed was, was so important that FDR um, appointed Wallace then to be the, the head of the USDA. And with that position, he was able to help farmers um, start using these hybrids and get better distribution for them. And the, the really kind of unbelievable thing is that, um, you know, when Wallace joined FDR's cabinet in, in 1933, there's less than one percent of American farmers who's who were using um, hybrid corn seeds. Mm-hmm. A decade later, it was three quarters of all corn in the country that was being grown from hybrids. That's remarkable. And so it really did establish this this current um, system. But the problem is, as you alluded to, that when you have everyone fine, you know, using crops that see higher yields. Um, when you start to come out of that period of drought um, and everyone is succeeding, there's this danger of having such an oversupply that it depresses prices and causes problems of its own. And so Wallace, 
with the idea of the ever-normal granary, where the, the, the government would buy surplus and, and hold it and, and in order to, to keep prices up at times of abundance. And then when uh, there were years of low yield because of drought or pests or whatever, um, the government could release from, from the granary in order to keep food prices down. Right. Why don't and, we have that now, Ted? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, what happened to that? That's such a that's such a common sense idea. Yeah. I mean, it, instead of the commodity trading that we do now, which I don't know when that was established, but um, isn't that what makes prices on commodities fluctuate so wildly? Is futures it, trading? It is, and it's. I mean, and the the simple answer to what happened to all of that is, I mean, the short answer is Earl Butts. Right. Okay. Um, thank you. <laughs> who, was, who was the Secretary of Agriculture under Richard Nixon. Yeah. Um, but Butts in, in himself was a kind of culmination of, uh, of a more than a decade of starting to move in this direction, coming out of World War II mm. after FDR, of, of thinking of food production uh, not as something that the government stepped in and, and controlled in order to keep food prices low um, domestically, but as something that we could control in a way that, that we could overproduce and make uh, and control food prices and keep them artificially low worldwide. Right. It was making food into a weapon. That's is that, right. I think and how that, you put it. And that, those were those were Earl Butts's exact words that he yeah. said. You know, we can we can make this a weapon, and and it, the thing that finally pushed that over the edge was the the OPEC oil crisis, where everyone got to see what happens when someone or with when a coalition of countries with a a resource that everyone needs and is in limited supply say we're going to withhold supply. Uh, you know, unless we get certain foreign policy goals accomplished. Mm -hmm. And there was an assessment done of American resources, and the decision was that what we had that, that we could rely on as, as a natural resource that other countries couldn't um, was food. Mm -hmm. um, and so everything gets put toward um, trying to keep food prices as low as possible. So what happened to the ever-normal granary? Um, mm -hmm. We sold it. We sold it to the Soviets. Uh -huh. and, um, and when they bought out all of, all of the, the, that, that grain, um, it, it brought food, it, or brought the commodities prices down, and, um, and the government said, you know, this will not be a problem. What we will do is... Uh, we'll we'll support the farmers. We'll we'll institute all sorts of price supports, subsidies. We'll, you keep producing, um, and as the prices come down and start to not make any economic sense, where the farmers are now producing uh, more of these grains than than the market can sustain, um, the government steps in now, and instead of leveling off prices. They're subsidizing the farmers to, to artificially depress prices. Hmm. Hmm. 
Subsidizing farmers to artificially depress prices. That's right. So, I mean, you go now, especially at this current moment, right. you go now to any, any farm, and what you see um, is you ask a farmer, you know, what's your, what's your price of production per bushel? Mm-hmm. It's going to be over what the market price per bushel right. is for, for corn and soybeans. And so the only way that that works is for the government effectively to be paying the farmer to grow that. And the reason that the government has an interest in that is that they want to be able to be the the main supplier of those key grains for countries around the world, both Mm -hmm. our enemies in the form of China and and now Russia, Mm -hmm. um, but also our allies, that that effectively we are establishing a kind of leverage um, over those countries by being their their primary source for these these grains that everyone needs. Mm-hmm. The problem, of course, is that we very quickly discovered when we um, attempted the, the the grain embargo with with the Soviets after the invasion of Afghanistan mm-hmm. is that you can also end up in a situation where uh, those countries may be dependent on us for their for their Supply, but we're also dependent on them for our demand. Yeah, <laughs> and so if if say you know in a moment like some of the situations that we're in now, you know if you don't do what we want you to do, maybe we'll just cancel our grain imports for a year or two years or five. Right. Um, that threatens to to push prices so far down that that the government can't easily subsidize the farmers and you end up with a situation where either the government goes deep into the red or farms fail. That's right. And that was sort of the farm aid situation back in the 80s, right? Well, yeah. I mean, Was some that of caused problems, by something, that kind of political machinations? You'll forgive me if I'm a little fuzzy on that. Well, I mean, it was really, you know, a slow outcome from the, um, from the grain embargo that right. we attempted with the Soviets that, that um, and even as they started getting their their wheat in particular from from their markets um and the u s attempted to stabilize the markets by freezing them at times and by mm-hmm. subsidizing them um the uncertainty that was introduced you know kept the prices spiraling downward and it right. and it happened at the exact same time that there was a a spike in inflation and we ended up in a situation where farmers were staying afloat by taking out loans, but then because of inflation, the loans kept, the, the, what they owed kept skyrocketing, and they just couldn't get out of the hole. And their value of their land at the same time That's was plummeting. Right. That's Isn't right. that right? Let's move on a little bit because, um, unfortunately, we don't have that much more time, and, and I'm going to have to skip over a whole bunch of questions. I might have to make you come back because, I mean... <laughs> Because, I mean, this is just, to me, you know, I'm hoping that this is as fascinating to everyone else as it is to me. I'm such a nerd. But um, yeah, I want to go to something that um, you alluded to uh, at the beginning of the show when you were talking about why you wrote this book. And um, and that is the sort of major disconnect between the way consumers perceive farming and the reality of the business. And, for example, I think many consumers think that, well, you know, these guys who are growing corn and soy, well, they should just stop doing that and they should just grow something else. And why don't they just grow something 
else. They don't have to do that. But the real, or, or, you know, or if you're in the, in the livestock, uh, you know, business there, they think, oh, well, you don't have to, you know, work with these big abattoirs with these big, uh, you know, Tyson, etc. Cargill, etc. You can just do your own thing, but there are real reasons why that isn't so easy. And I, I was hoping you would be able to sort of tease out, uh, for, you know, listeners, like, why is it so hard for farmers to, um, change, uh, change their spots as it were. Like, you know, why, why, you know, why doesn't everybody become a Joel Salatin, for example? <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> you know what I mean? well, yeah, well, I mean, the first thing is that there, there are subsidies for, um, for certain crops and, yeah. and they are higher for, for these key grains that are traded as commodities. But then you also have to look at the, the, the sort of deeper, uh, systemic stuff. I mean, there's, crop insurance because yeah. because there's better support for these these crops insurers are willing to insure them at a higher rate than other crops mm. and so if there's the possibility of loss um, as there always is you 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 risk less um, in terms of your insurance in that way also on top of that because um, this has been the thing that we've been pushing farmers toward. There's more research on these crops than anything else. There, there yeah. are agronomists at all of the, the ag extensions. There are USDA uh, supports in that way in terms of, of research and data. And, um, and of course, the companies themselves, w- which have invested heavily in, into these grains in order to, to profit off of them, are also willing to provide more support if you're growing the that, that stand to yield the highest profits for them. Mm-hmm. So everything is designed to make it the easiest thing possible to do um, in raising soybeans and corn. Yeah. It's, just, it's just where there's the most pressure. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's where there's the most pressure. And yeah. so um, it, if... If it's extremely difficult and risky and expensive to do things one way, and it's going to be easier and cheaper with less risk and a, a greater possibility of success, and also, you know, on these multi-generational farms, there's a chance that, that you stay afloat in a way that you're able to pass this operation on to your kids and your grandkids. That's the, the thing that the people are going to do. Yeah. And so we really want to reform the food system, what we have to do is figure out ways to change the incentives, to, to provide better support, better research, better availability of information for farmers um, in other methods. But also, we, we've got to have regulatory pressure and, and the government agencies that, that govern farming have to be uh, set up in such a way that that they are pushing things in in the direction that supports that kind of food system reform. Yeah, yeah. And that 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 means doing more than just buying, you know, the the stuff that's labeled organic in the grocery aisle. That that means that we we have to insist on uh, we have to we have to research the who the people are who support this kind of reform and vote for them. Yeah. When they're in office, we have to insist that they that they follow through and and try to make things better for our families at the dinner table, 
but also better for the farmer in the tractor seat. Yes, absolutely. And and that leads me to uh, what unfortunately is going to be my last question, and that's about water. Um, having just written an article about... Um, about, uh, you know, uh, institutional investors and foreigners buying American farmland, I, you know, the water issue is, is a big one in that, in that equation, because you don't really want to be selling off basically your arable land and your water to um, somebody else's food chain necessarily, especially as we, you know, move into more and more of climate change and those impacts. So Nebraska seems to have some very sensible water regulations, but most other states have kind of a first come first serve model. And, um, I wondered, like, how, what do you, how, how do you feel farmers are preparing for major water issues, or are they preparing for that, um, major water shortages, uh, or are they preparing for that? Like, how, sort of how deeply are they feeling? Because, I mean, everybody's had drought now for years and years and seen the impacts of that. And, you know, irrigation notwithstanding, um, and it's too bad we didn't get to talk about the development of pivot point irrigation, which I thought was fascinating, but... Um, but, you know, like, what are people doing about it? Like, what, you know, how are they outside of Nebraska? What, what's going to happen to those farms that don't necessarily have state or government regulations around uh, water usage? Well, that's the, I think the, the maybe the most concerning thing going forward for, for agriculture in this country mm. is that, that really since the 1950s, we have dealt with periods of drought um, by pumping groundwater and irrigating. And at the same time, um, we've expanded this kind of rapid growth uh, using those same methods. Yeah. And so um, we've seen this, this boom in agriculture over the last 50, 60 years. But one of the things that just isn't discussed is that when you look at states like Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, they have pumped their aquifers out, the groundwater sources for all of that irrigation, yeah. to critical points. I mean, the state of Kansas estimates that they have, in the last 50 years, used up 75% of their water resources. Oh. And that those are ancient water resources. So when it's right. gone, really, it's gone. Yeah. And, and, you know, Kansas says, if we don't make some changes, we think we're going to be out of water in 20 years. West Texas, their their part of the High Plains aquifer system is a perched aquifer. It doesn't recharge at all. Uh-huh. They've pumped it dry. It's yeah. gone. Yep. And so as we start talking about future of agriculture, I mean, the very first and most critical part of this is really the future of water. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I will add to that that I found truly alarming is talking to Don Wilhite at the drought, the National Drought Mitigation Center. Yeah. He explained that pumping all of that deep water, very cold water, out of the ground and spraying it on the surface has not only allowed us to irrigate those crops, but it has created a microclimate over much of the Midwest where the temperatures are kept artificially low because we've essentially turned the whole area into a swamp cooler. Whoa. But once the water is gone, if we don't have that to spray over, um, the estimate is that the, that the temperatures for that whole region could climb by as much as 9 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, my word. 
Yeah, that was that, a very alarming moment in your book. <laughs> that's that's disastrous because if we yeah. if we don't have water to irrigate and it's also too hot to grow most of the crops that we've been growing, then we're in a crisis. Yeah. I don't see any, um, I, you know, I, I looked a bit into water regulations, or, you know, especially in the states that you mentioned, um, and it, it's an enormous swath of, of uh, the Midwest and the West uh, that have really almost no regulation around water, or if it is, it's, it's regulations that date back to the 19th century and, and really have no basis uh, in today's demands. And it was, it was one of the scarier parts of the research that I did, you know, as, as um, you know, surface shallow that, as it was. I mean, it was really like, wow. And are we thinking that we're going to eventually from the Northeast be pumping water out? Out to the to the west to continue, you know, like I just I don't see anybody really taking grasping this the severity of this crisis, oncoming crisis, and and sort of coming up with any kind of um, strategy for mitigating it. And I just you know I don't know you have more uh, more of your ear to the ground to what's happening in ag schools and stuff like that. What what are what are they saying in uh, extension schools? What are they saying in uh, you know larger organizations that deal with farming? Nothing. Well, the Not main much. thing that, that they're looking at is, and I do think that this is a partial solution. I don't want to really dismiss it. But the main thing that they're looking at is is increased efficiency yeah. um, and saying, you know, these pivots um, are often applying way more water than is necessary to raise the crop. And, um, you know, one of the local natural resource districts that I visited you know, had done a study where they found that if if they were able to control the pivot rather than the farmer, that they could get the same yield by using one-third as much water. And there's also lots and lots of research being done on field sensors that will make it so that the pivots only water when and where the water is needed to hopefully be able to reduce that water usage even more. Yeah. Um, but the problem remains that in you know in Nebraska there's there's some recharge of the aquifer coming still from underground sources, um, and and surface water making it down to to the aquifer and 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 moving across to the eastern part of the state. That's really not happening as you get farther south. And yeah. So even even so, we're talking about stretching resources. But but we're not talking about how we replenish them. There's there's really no way to do that, and so we need to be finding crops that are less water intensive. That's got to be part of it. Yeah, because corn and soy are two of the most water intensive crops that we That's grow. Right. So. That's right. And 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 so we th- th- this is the moment where we need to be talking about how to reform the system yeah. in order to be getting the, the resources that we need out of the fields, but without waiting until we have completely squandered all of the resources that support the agriculture and and have to come up with a solution in the midst of a crisis. Right, and then and then what's ha- what happens to all those farmers? Right. I mean, Ted, we're going to come back and talk about that. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> I'll call your publicist. We'll make another date. <laughs> okay. <that's laughs> because we didn't great. get to talk about succession or the or the the impact of irrigation. Uh, you know, like the pipeline, the the Keystone pipeline, and other. You know, like there's just so much. Just the general personalities of the wonderful family that you spent so much time with. But um, I apologize for having to cut you off here. And um, thanks so much for joining me today. And thanks so much for listening, folks. And we'll see you next time with another great show. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Tuesday.